0: Welcome, everyone, to another regularly scheduled rerun. Today, we have an important episode from last year describing some of the tenets of neoliberalism, and it's always good to have a refresher on one of the most influential aspects of society today. But I'm really excited about what the members are getting to listen to this week. They've got a new bonus episode in their feed today that gets into some pretty unique topics. Continuing with our discussions that have been touching on Hawaiian culture recently, we use the colonialism in Hawaii and the forcible disconnection from the ancient Hawaiian culture at the hands of missionaries as sort of a jumping-off point to examine uh, the larger and more universal human need to understand one's own cultural legacy and the pain that is caused by not being able to construct a coherent story about that legacy. And honestly, I tapped into some pretty deep-seated stuff going on in my own head recently, and this bonus episode conversation springs directly from that. So I'm hoping that some people find it helpful Maybe even insightful. So to hear that, and for access to all of our past and future members' episodes, and to support the work that goes into this show, sign up as a member at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy.
1: The thing that's happened is that the story became so dominant, we don't even realize it's like fish in the water.
0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contributes tab at bestofleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Upstream, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Jacobin Radio, Jim Hightower, and the Tom Hartman Program.
2: Having more, higher material standards is really important in poorer countries where people haven't got basic necessities.
3: This is Richard Wilkinson, co-author of The Spirit Level.
2: But for us in the rich world, having more and more of everything makes less and less difference. It's no longer crucial to our well-being to have a higher material standard. It's not just a matter of taking out the bads. It's that our material standards are high enough. And actually, the way we should now be improving the real quality of our lives, now that that's no longer an effective method, is by improving the quality of the social environment.
4: It's highly sensitive, and it's highly personal, to even speak in language of have and have not. This is Maria
3: Scordialis, co-founder of the Living Wholeness Institute and co-initiator of The Art
4: of Hosting. She worked in the Froome area for the British government for many years. To me, this is part of what has become and has been created from the 80s onwards with the neoliberalistic movement and the (laughs) hyper-capitalism that kind of emerged in our world is that this gentrification is a narrative or a myth, a modern-day myth that we are creating for ourselves as an aspiration of what we should all become. And in my life, I have lived with very affluent people, and I have lived and seen and witnessed and been part of severe poverty. And from a child living in India, being in the slums in India, I used to always find it I mean, mean, this is really young age, seven years old, I could remember these thought forms going through my mind, is why do people that we call poor seem to be more happy and connected to their lives than the rich kids that I went to school with who were taking drugs because they didn't have a family or they had so much family pressure to be something that they were not. So I was always confused at this paradox. So the first thing that I would have to say is that if I was to be invited to have those kinds of conversations, I would want to reframe the haves and haves nots into what do we really see as life? (laughs) What do we value about life? What do we really ask to leave for our children and for their children as our legacy, I would want to have a more root system conversation about living a good life and li- leaving a good earth for the next generations, because I think that would allow us to go to a more meaningful conversation. Then a conversation about who has and who hasn't and what we're trying to aspire. Cause to me, that just goes into that modern day myth and narrative of trying to live in prettiness, a pearl is created by the grit. (laughs) So we need the diversity. So I feel that what we need to come back into is some more fundamental conversations or basic conversations about what does life really mean to us? (laughs) And what are the things that make us as human beings feel alive and feel fulfilled? So that when we die, because that's the only certainty, we kind of can feel that we are leaving something for those that come, those that follow, that those that will take forward what we have brought in. And I feel that somehow we've lost touching that fundament and that's why our earth is in danger and actually we as a human species are in danger we are facing our own suicide the most and so I feel that we have to be very careful how much the gentrification has actually entered into our own selves because when we talk about haves and have-nots to me that's a gentrified perspective immediately As opposed to, have I met my neighbor? Do I know who you are? Do I know your story? As opposed to me saying, oh, you've come from London. Or, oh, you were born in Froome. I feel the conversation needs to be more about how we humans want to live and work. And basically save ourselves from our own extinction that we're facing right now.
5: covered the first two principles reduce democracy and shape ideology mentioning the Powell yeah. Memorandum and the mm-hmm. third one is redesign the economy where they actually put yeah. these strategies yeah. into place right down where people live work
6: yeah. well the way you redesign the economy was by instituting the we're called the neoliberal programs the Washington consensus it was sometimes called it kind of started in the Late Carter years, it uh, took off with Reagan and pursued further by Clinton, expanded and on to the present. And this is worldwide, incidentally. It's an effort to reduce the role of the public, which means through the one Institution that the public can participate in to some extent, namely the government. In principle and sometimes in practice, people can influence government decisions. So, reduce the role of government and transfer it to what's called the market, which means in effect private concentrations of capital, corporate concentrations, a very limited market, but that's the idea. So, you know, Reagan's slogan was... Government is the problem, not the solution. We have to turn things over to private power, in effect, private tyrannies, because the population has no direct input at all into the decision making of the corporate sector, the relatively highly integrated systems of power that constitute the corporate sector, with you know big banks on the boards of many corporations and all sorts of other kinds of integration and relative monopolization, not full, of course. Meanwhile, the financial institutions, one of the major features of the neoliberal period, has been an enormous growth of financial institutions and a change in their character. So if you go back to the 50s and 60s, the period of what's sometimes called regulated capitalism, great growth period, banks were banks. Banks were places where you could deposit some money. They would lend it to somebody for, say, starting a business or building a home or whatever. That's what banks were. They were also regulated by the New Deal regulations, so there were no financial crises. and They functioned as a central part of the state capitalist economy. Starting in the early 70s, that changed radically. Partly it was the breakdown of the whole Bretton Woods system, Nixon's uh, the so-called Nixon shock, but all of this was coordinated, and one of the results was that financial institutions not only grew enormously in size, just exploded, but also changed radically in character instead of being connected to the real economy. They more and more were involved in speculation that complicated the financial instruments, all the things we've seen, and of course, the deregulation began late Carter, but particularly Reagan and Clinton. Deregulation meant regular financial crises. Financial crises means the public bails out the big banks for their predatory activities, uh, we saw this again in 2007, 2008. Uh, the effects of all these policies, we'll just talk to the United States about the United States, but it's quite similar elsewhere, uh, Britain, uh, Europe, uh, Latin America. But in the United States, which was not the worst hit, incidentally, but pretty typical, the effect of these policies was to increase sharply the concentration of capital, the wealth, became extremely concentrated. Uh, For the general public, uh, there was stagnation or even decline. That's simply to take one illustration, just take real wages of working people, non-supervisory workers. In 2007, that's right before the great crash that's the peak of euphoria among economists, uh, political analysts, and so on about the wonderful economy that we have, which called the Great Moderation, everything's been solved, and so on. So right at that point, uh, 2007, real wages for working people were lower than they were in 1979 when the neoliberal policies began. And that's an index of what's happened. Well, one effect of concentration of wealth is that you get concentration of political power by obvious mechanisms, which means kind of a vicious cycle sets off in which a political power being concentrated makes decisions which lead further to further concentration of wealth and undermine popular participation and result in a sharp decline in democracy. Which gets Um, us to uh, your fourth principle, shift the
5: burden. And you contrast that with how Henry Ford, back about a hundred years ago, doubled the minimum wage he paid his workers because he wanted them to have money to buy automobiles. And then you contrast it with what's going on now. So in the redesign of the economy, they basically shifted the burden so that even though people had trillions of dollars of mutual funds and pension savings, that they had no control over these huge monies. Those were controlled by the Wall Street banks and insurance companies. And that's what they speculated with. They speculated, as Brandeis once said, these banks speculate with other people's money. So talk about how they
6: then shift the burden. Well, the neoliberal programs do radically shift the burden. By now, especially since the Occupy movement put it on the public agenda. It's familiar, the 1%, the 99%. There's been a sharp increase in concentrated wealth for a very small part of the population, while the general population has either stagnated or in fact declined, as I mentioned. and That has an immediate effect on the political system through the mechanisms that I mentioned, including the a huge increase in the role of the financial institutions, what Brandeis warned about was a very small as compared with what's happening today. We see that in, well, will just to mention some figures, there's substantial research in academic political science which compares people's attitudes with public policy. So it's fairly straightforward. Public policy, you see there's extensive, pretty reliable polling information on people's attitudes, so you can compare them. And the results are quite stunning. Some of the best work was done by Martin Gillens, Larry Bartell, Benjamin Page, and others. What you find is that about maybe 70% of the population, at the lowest, 70% 70% on the wealth income scale are essentially disenfranchised, meaning their own representatives pay no attention to their opinions. There's no correlation between what they want and what their own representatives act in their legislative function. Well, as you move up the income wealth scale, you get somewhat more influence. At the very top, policies are basically set. That's a very sharp decline in democracy, and it shows up in many ways. One of the respects in which it shows up is what today is called populism, strange use of the word. But what it means is tremendous anger, disillusionment, contempt for institutions, Public attitudes towards Congress, the presidency, almost any institution you take are very low. You see these centrist institutions that have been running the country in concert for a long time are collapsing. We just saw that in the last election here in the United States. In the November election, the two major forces, two, one was the Trump campaign. The other was the Sanders campaign. I mean, the Sanders campaign was in many ways much more remarkable. It broke with over 100 years of U.S. political history. Throughout this whole period, elections are pretty much bought. You can predict the outcome of an election pretty much by just taking a look at campaign spending. And that means predicting policy. Well, here came Bernie Sanders. No support from concentrated wealth, from the corporate sector, from the wealthy. The media either disregarded or ridiculed him, mostly unknown even used a scare word, socialism, he would have won the Democratic nomination if it hadn't been for the shenanigans of the Obama-Clinton party managers. On the other side, the Republicans, which was a pretty awful sight altogether, I should say, but someone came up who represented the popular base and the Republican establishment couldn't stop him. The same thing's happening in other countries the election in France just a couple of days ago, the two major political groupings didn't even participate. They'd been wiped out. So you had two candidates who came from the outside, one with a neo fascist background, the other uh, an independent neoliberal who most of the public didn't like very much, but that was it. The same thing's happening in country after country. This anger and disillusionment, and fear and uh, scapegoating, hatred of others, and so on, are reflecting the fact that there have been socioeconomic policies put in place which had the explicit objective of undermining democratic participation and were designed in ways that ensured huge growth of mostly predatory financial institutions and high concentration of wealth and stagnation or decline for the majority.
7: What I would say is that the conventional view of neoliberalism emphasizes, so to speak marketization, putting everything under the control of the free market. And privatization. Yeah. Privatization would be a very good example of this because it takes stuff that's formerly been under the state, for example, and now it's in the market and so it's subject to directly the laws of capitalism. But what I think should be understood to characterize neoliberalism is almost precisely the opposite. It is not the subjection of everything to market forces, supply and demand, so to speak. It is actually the removal of key pieces of the economy and their subjection to political control ultimately through governments, ultimately through political parties. So what we would be talking about is saying that what neoliberalism is about – is creating one after another means to redistribute income to the very rich. The point is neoliberalism is a response to the weakness of the economy. And what is remarkable is that the way this response has taken place You know, there's only so much you can distribute. So there's only so much in a normal economy that you can get to the rich and the capitalists. You got to give them more profits. And the only way you can give them more profits is to essentially austerity, cut wages, cut social spending, and they get more profits that way. But if the pie is growing slowly, what it means is that that is not going to be even if Capitalists get almost all of the what they produce and workers get hardly any. If the pie is hardly growing, they won't get that much. What has happened therefore is there's been a switch away from production to redistribution to ripoff, and that ripoff is viable because the beneficiaries are just a tiny, tiny drop of the economy. Top 1% and above.
3: So let me just get this right. Cause you're kind of saying, I think that the economy is in private hands, but profits are in public hands.
7: You could <laughs> say, and this is not, I didn't make up this phrase is, uh, yes, that in a sense, what we have had is the socialization of profits for the rich and the privatization of the losses for everybody else. It's slightly incorrect because it implies that sort of the – that essentially it's about profits and wages and like that. But actually, the infernal thing about neoliberalism is it's taking stuff that's already kind of in the hands of us and giving it to them. How can this be? How can this redistribution upward take place? I'm saying the idea, the key to it is that it frees the rich and the capitalists from this nasty process of actually having to invest and, you know, hire workers, buy new plant and equipment, and actually have to sell a product. This cuts all that out and goes, cuts to the chase by politically redistributing by political means the income to the 1% and above. Uh, so what has happened, I mean, just to speak for a minute to the outcome, it has meant that if we look at the post-war period, income went to the top 1% to the tune of about 8 to 10% of the whole economy. And that was very, very permanent, so to speak. You look at the period from about 1943 to 1980, nothing much changed except by 1980. Actually, the top 1% was getting actually only about 8%. But since then, since neoliberalism has been put into effect, the proportion of the income that has gone to the top 1% and above is 25%. So two and a half times is the change in the distribution of income has been accomplished and not very much through the actual process of investment and profit making, but by politically determined redistribution.
3: So how did this happen?
7: Well, I think we should do this in two phases. One, what were the, so to speak, mechanics or mechanisms by which the income went from the people which is really what it was is to the very wealthy and the capitalists and what i'm going to say now is really a story everyone is familiar with i'm just not sure everyone is totally familiar with the magnitude of what has been accomplished for the top 1% in this way so people will of course remember the reagan and what happened in the Reagan administration, the first thing that happened was just ripoff, huge ripoff. That is um, massive tax breaks to the rich, which obviously had to be paid for by the rest of us. And taxation has become an ongoing field for neoliberal economy, neoliberal political redistribution. That's one. Number two. We were talking earlier about the stock market and why the stock market is not a very good indication of the health of the real economy. And now people can – we could cash that out very easily because if we look at the stock market today, what we've seen is that it's been going up and up and up. What has been the result? It is that the relationship between stock prices – and actual profits for firms is in the ratio of 30 to 1. So that what we're talking about is that the prices of stocks are 30 times profits. Now, the norm is about 12%, maybe 14%. The only time this level has ever been reached before is the end of the 20s when we had a crash and the end of The 90s at the end of the stock market bubble. So
3: bubble nomics.
7: So we had a crash. So what is going on? I think this is a beautiful exemplification of how neoliberalism works. You can't make profits that fast by actually participating in investment, employment, and so forth. But you can if you're investing in the stock market. And how can you be sure, though, if you're going to invest in the stock market that stocks are going to go up? Well, that one of the key functions that the government has taken on itself through the Federal Reserve is to keep interest rates down. And those low interest rates allow cheap borrowing by the rich. They invest in stocks and that keeps pushing stocks up and nobody can do anything about it. And everybody watches in envy and a tiny, tiny proportion of people benefit because only a tiny, tiny portion of people own any degree of stocks.
3: Well, I mean, just one other aspect of this, because you said everybody remembers Reagan and the tax cuts. The other side, of course, is that he did a frontal assault on the trade union movement. And since that time, as you've written elsewhere, wages have not recovered. And so, in this, most people would think, oh, interest rates are low. That means that ordinary people will have access to, say, buying homes and, and things, but only if their income goes up.
7: Exactly. And we've seen that one result of the way the system is now working is that we did have a period in which the Fed was producing money for the very well off in a parallel way keeping interest rates down, and driving up the prices of housing. And housing gave workers the illusion that they were getting rich and making a lot of money. But the result, as we know, was that a crash took place, which should have wiped out both workers and capitalists. But the bailout took place only for the rich and the capitalists. And the result was a catastrophic loss of assets by normal people and especially for black people. So what you accomplish through this neoliberal mode is you drive up stock values or housing values or any other asset values and this makes money for anyone who could be in the market so to speak and then the crash ultimately takes place. And the bottom line is bailout.
3: Don't you dare speak of the commonwealth. To become every man for himself. Rich and poor, void in between. Raise a wire, gay communities. The wealthiest in all movies with their own privatized police while the silent majority.
8: We know that millions of American families lost their homes after Wall Street's 2007 financial crash. But where did all those houses go? It turns out that Wall Streeters themselves formed profiteering investment groups that rushed out to scoop up tens of thousands of those foreclosed properties, usually grabbing them on the cheap at courthouse auctions in suburban metro areas that were hard hit by the crash. These moneyed syndicates have deep, deep pockets, so they easily outbid local buyers to take possession of the majority of single-family homes being sold off in many distressed places. Why are they buying? to turn the homes into rental properties and become the dominant suburban landlord, controlling the local market and constantly jacking up rents. For example, the Wall Street Journal found that in Nashville's suburb of Spring Hill, just four of these predatory giants own 700 houses, giving this oligopoly of absentee investors ownership of three-fourths of all rental houses in town. One of these bulk buyers is an arm of Blackstone, the world's largest private equity firm. Another is an equity outfit that was spun out of the housing speculation department of Goldman Sachs. And another is a billionaire whose investors include the Alaska State Oil Fund. Not only do rents jump dramatically when such outfits seize the market, but Wall Street's intention is to impose, quote, a new way on housing America. They're pushing a cultural shift in which homeownership is no longer part of the American dream and tenants are taught to accept annual rent increases as the price of having a home. This is Jim Hightower saying, so let's review what's happened here. The banksters crash the economy, you lose income and your home, they buy your house at auction, then they rent it to you at an ever-increasing price. The new way is the same old story, the rich robbing the rest of us.
0: Robber
2: barons are here today The faces is changed but the game's the same And though their empires may collapse They still command their pound of flesh And drink their wine within their walls Drink their wine within their hidden walls Gaffling bankers they knew no bounds their house of cards came crashing down. Begged for help from the public parks. We paid the debt, every one of us. They keep their gold within their walls. Keep their gold within their mansion walls.
3: I mean, it just seems to me like this is a, a suicidal cycle that we're in. As you've said, that more and more capitalists and financiers are dependent on the state to keep them going and to give them profits through bailouts and tax breaks. And is this just a never-ending cycle at some point? Can we have, like, as you're seeing now in the United States, a housing crisis, more and more homelessness, more and more people without, presumably, if health care gets repealed and replaced, even more people without access to health care, in other words, with a dying population?
7: I think dying population was a good way of getting into it because if we're talking a little bit about ideology, which we should, again, do in a different conversation about politics, what we could see is like, oh, if we were talking about someone like Hillary Clinton, she made no bones about her defense of finance and the resulting limitations on what she could do. She didn't make the absolute connection I'm making. But she said, look, the bankers have to fix things themselves. We can't tell them what to do. On the other hand, we can say that a minimum wage of more than $12 an hour is going to be a big problem for the economy. So that was sort of a justification for neoliberalism in terms of austerity. But now if we look at Trump, the Republicans and Trump, what are they saying about this? Uh, They're saying, look, We feel very badly about having to take away health care for people. (laughs) But after all, that has to be paid for somehow. And who's going to pay for health care? It's got to be the capitalists. Who are making the investments? Who are making the economy go? Except so, that
3: they say something else. You know, say it's unconscionable to ask the auto workers in Detroit to pay for health care for people who can't afford it. As well, that's if, that's their <laughs>
7: yeah, that's their that's their uh, sophisticated argument. Their bottom line argument, you know, this. Their bottom line argument is that the job makers, the economy <laughs> makers, are are the ones who need to be protected. And even if they didn't, it's just the way they say it. It's immoral to take money from these people. It may be bad to take health care away from working people, but it's even worse to take money away from the people who have it and made it. We have one more level. There's still one more level. Well, can and that I just is... say
3: before you get to that level, <laughs> just one really good example sure. because you've been talking about ideology and the way that this has been going on literally since the era of Reagan and before that the mentality has changed so much that when American Airlines tried to raise wages for its workers who hadn't seen a wage increase in a long time, the investors went apoplectic and said – this is an unconscionable wealth transfer from them to us. How dare they? They're just the workers.
7: (laughs) Exactly. So I wanted to make this point because, oh, it's just a, a left propaganda point, but it's actually a very telling. If you look at Bannon and Bannon's backer. Mercer. Mercer, when they talk about the question of money going from the rich to the poor, They really say the opposite. What they say is that if people are incapable of making enough money, they say this explicitly, to make enough money to survive rather than taxation and welfare and all this, they should be left to die. So that's the next phase of ideology if we move further into the Trump era. I just wanted to finish this discussion of the economics of neoliberalism in a way. It's on the one hand, this upward redistribution, but there's another side of it, which is equally infernal and complements it very well. And we've already seen a bit of it, which is that on the one hand, they depend on redistribution, but because they're depending on redistribution and not investment in plant and equipment, they no longer want to spend money or have the government spend money in any way of providing the basic conditions for private investment. They are no longer willing to carry out the public investment that everyone since Adam Smith realized had to be the function of the government. So just to take a couple quick indicators of this. During the post-war boom, the government was paying about 4% a year on roads and highways, education, and so forth. That is, they're investing 3 to 4% more each year. Now, in the 90s, and 2000, it was down about one5 to 2%. It's been for the last five years 1%. So hardly any public investment. And what that's meant is that the age of the government capital stock, so to speak, For the whole post-war period up to about 1975, the age was steady at around 14 years. That meant that as plant and equipment went out of business, it was replaced. And so the stock never got older. But today, that period is about 14 years. Today, it's about 26 years. So the lack of investment, of government investment, has redounded in... Uh, incredible aging of the government capital. And to put it in layperson's terms, the Corps of Civil Engineers talking about the upshot of this, because it's come up in this whole business of Trump's supposed and non-real infrastructure programs, they say that there has been so little expenditure on infrastructure, just to make up the difference of the what should have been spent, it will now take $4 trillion, $4 trillion, which is about a quarter of the economy, maybe between a quarter and a fifth of the economy.
3: But we should say $4 trillion is about what they spent on the invasion in Iraq. So it's not like it isn't there.
7: Very good. It's not that it can't be afforded. And a very interesting political question would be, Given that so much of the income and therefore wealth has been built up by redistribution rather than production, one thing we can certainly be thinking about in a way that would have been more difficult before is flat out redistribution from the rich, just a wealth tax. And that is something that could take place or much bigger taxes of the rich that could take place without hurting investment. We used to be told we can't tax the rich because they won't invest. But since they're not investing anyway, and simply ripping us off, we have that easy way forward. It's not a permanent way, but it's an easy way forward.
3: Well, we've really literally almost run out of time. And we didn't get to the other political aspects that I want to talk to you about, Robert Brenner, maybe we'll save it for another podcast where we can get into the political consequences. And, you know, let's say the Democratic Party and its neoliberal leadership that's fighting with its social democratic base and what this means, especially in terms of the economic landscape that you've laid out. Is there any final thing you want to just say about these neoliberalism that would kind of entice people to hold with uh, bated breath for the next one?
7: Well, yeah, I think what we would normally be doing now and talking about neoliberalism is talking about neoliberal politics. But I would just want to state the basic structure here that we would have to limb out in a further conversation. If we're saying our point is that what is going on today is not investment in the real economy to grow and the capitalists get a big share of that growth, that's not happening. What's happening is redistribution and just straight ripoff. So that means that it requires government above all and political parties who control the government to make this happen. And so how has that come about? What I want to emphasize is that the way this has really been dictated by – finance dictated by the top capitalists and what the Republican Party found in the 80s and what the Democratic Party found in the 90s, that the way to proceed in this new order was to take the lead in this political redistribution, Reagan taxes, Clinton finance. The deal is, of course, that on the one hand, the politicians and the political parties provide the conditions, political conditions, for this upward redistribution. On the other hand, the rich, the financiers, provide the funds for the politicians to compete politically. And so it is this deal that has allowed for the forging of a very tight alliance. It's no longer the economy over here, politics over here, it's politics in the economy as merged. And what that means is that the capitalist economy depends on the active participation of these political parties in allowing them to go on and vice versa. The parties depend on support from financiers. One final point. Listeners should think of the implications of this. This means that that comes first. There's no way that the Political parties can ignore the needs of finance. If they do, they will not get funding. Simple as that. And so what it means is that people are saying, well, the Democrats don't really understand. They need to go back to the working class and provide the working class what it needs to be able to win elections. The problem is to provide the workers what they need, they have to pay for that. And what the financiers say is you just try paying workers in the form of welfare money that could be going to us and you will find yourself in a very interesting position about fundraising. And when Obama tried this for the tiniest little bit, people may have heard him on television and stuff, people saying well, – When Obama is doing hardly anything, why are they pissed at him? He needs to do that to keep the support of his base. And the financiers would say say on Charlie Rose, sorry, no, he's really attacking finance and we can't have it. And what is meant actually is that in the period since 2009, the Republicans, although the Democrats and Republicans have spent ever more, of course, on elections the actually the republicans are doing a lot better in raising money and so the democrats who are being outspent by 70% are not about to go hurt the financiers by supporting workers and there is just no chance that that's going to happen not cuz the democrats don't see it but because they can't do it and keep their face
3: now hang me up to try.
0: The activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. And no, it is not to stock up on torches and pitchforks, at least not yet. Today's activism is to expand your economic knowledge with the core project. Now, we recognize that diving deep into economic theory is not for everyone, but it should be less intimidating. You shouldn't need a degree in economics to feel like you can participate in the political conversations about our economic structures and how they impact society. After all, this is an issue that directly affects every single one of us, so you can't afford to tap out entirely. So if you're interested in fighting neoliberal ideas and helping move our country toward economic policies that work for everyone, and you'd like to bolster your econ education to help you along, you need to check out The Core Project. This organization began with the publication of an ebook called The Economy ebook and has expanded to create open access, interactive ebook based courses for anyone interested in learning about the economy and economics. Their mission is to create a community of learners and teachers collaborating to make economics accessible and relevant to today's problems core is question-motivated and designed to teach through models based on facts from history, experiments, and data. It's also a collaborative project and uses insights on the economy from a wide range of historical, geographical, disciplinary, and methodological perspectives with a focus on economic actors as both self-interested and ethical, why supply and demand are sometimes not equal, especially in markets for labor and credit, not only equilibria but also how Prices, quantities, and technologies change, the importance of economic rents for the working of a modern capitalist economy, and how institutions differ among economies and what difference this makes for macroeconomic performance. Now, if any of that sounds over your head, as it does for me, remember that the whole point of core is that by the end of the course it won't be. So head over to core-econ.org to register and download the ebook for free. Then explore their self-paced exams, labs, practice problems, a complete glossary, resources for teachers, and additional resources that complement the courses connected to the ebook. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestivalefe.com. So if brushing up on economic theory so you can help fix our broken system is something you may be into be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about expanding your economic knowledge with the core project via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too
2: We have an opportunity to have Kate Rayworth on the program. She's got a new book out Donut Economics, which I'm about two-thirds through reading. And it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary book. Uh, she's a senior visiting research associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute, senior associate with the Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership. Her website, Kate Rayworth, uh, K-A-T-E-R-A-W-O-R-T-H dot com. And you can tweet her at Kate Rayworth. And Kate, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, thanks, Tom. It's great to
2: be on. Thanks so much for joining us. One of the things, uh, in addition to the little uh, YouTube that you've got about, you know, the the, the origin of neoliberalism was the, the, the material in your book about this whole meeting at um, Montpelurin, if I'm saying that right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have I spent years on this program decrying uh, the neoliberalism, uh, the neoliberal turn that America took under the Reagan administration and the U.K. with Thatcher, and 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 also, frankly, the Democratic Party's embrace of neoliberalism with third-way uh, DLC, um, uh, economic and internationalist policies. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I never really understood the or I knew this this origin story, this birth story. Can you tell us that story of where did neoliberalism, even the word itself, come from?
1: Yeah, well, it is true for so many things, isn't it, Tom? We live by theories of economics that we don't actually know where they come from, and it's best to dig out the origins and find out. So almost exactly 70 years ago, in April 1947, a little band of economists met in a little Swiss village called Mont Pelerin because they wanted to write a new story, a new narrative of economics that would promote the economics they believed in. They were, let's be fair to them, they were afraid of the rise of totalitarian states that they saw going on in the Soviet Union. And they wanted to create an alternative narrative to that. And they called it themselves neoliberalism. Their defining belief was that if you give the state an inch, it will take a mile. In fact, it will swallow up the whole economy. And therefore, you can't let the state play any role at all. You need to minimize the state. What happened, though, was this, this idea that they had and let's be fair, it was back in the 1940s, very different times from where we are today. But their push back against state totalitarianism quickly turned into a push for market fundamentalism and the idea that the market is efficient. It promotes freedom. Who couldn't be against, who could be against that? And so you should give the market free reign. Now they came up with that in the 1940s. It didn't get put into practice in the 1940s. In fact, it waited in the wings for decades until politicians looking for a big new story coming out the 70s when everything ran aground, were ready for a new story. And Reagan was surrounded by members of the Mont Pelerin Society that had grown up. Mrs. Thatcher in the UK, well, her first chancellor was a member of the Mont Pelerin Society. And so when they came to power together at the same time, at the beginning of the 1980s, they put this story on the international stage. And it's the story that our lives have been run by for the last 40 years.
2: Uh, In the United States, the United Kingdom, and arguably the EU, the the, uh, restrictions that the EU put on governments being able to engage in fiscal stimulus and, of course, the absolute uh, destruction of their ability to engage in monetary policy by surrendering their currency, these are all aspects of this neoliberal agenda, are they not?
1: That's right. And the thing that's happened is that the story became so dominant, we don't even realize it's like fish in the water, right? And and so many of the the left wing parties, if we can want to still call them that, took on this um, approach because it seemed to be the only one on offer, right? Thatcher says there is no alternative and every side started being just a shade of difference of neoliberalism. So now we have in trade agreements, you know, the idea that companies can sue, sue government if they in any way threaten or undermine the profits that they expected to make. I mean, it's an extraordinary triumph of the power of corporates and the power of the market Apparently, over the role of the state to be a protection and a promoter of people and the well-being of the living world. Yeah. Now there has
2: been some pushback to this. The, uh, for example, just looking at these trade agreements, and, and well, actually, first, just to just to clarify, then the the fundamental ideas of neoliberalism. You list you list essentially seven of them, uh, or seven categories in in the introduction in the first part of your book, and then you go through them in more depth throughout the book. Um, you want to quickly summarize what what are the, the, the core tenets of neoliberalism beyond the one that you just mentioned, which is that the government can do no uh, right and the, the free market can do no wrong, so all power should go to the corporations and billionaires and should be taken away from the governments, essentially. Correct me if I'm misstating.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, I, in my book, and I've tried to make my book very playful, because being playful is sometimes the best way of being disruptive, I've drawn up what I think is the script of the neoliberal play that we've been living by. And, and sometimes if you describe the characters in a play, and you give you, you load the description of the characters with so much um, such, such traits that it's obvious how the script is going to run, and the story almost writes itself. And so Milton Friedman was really the master storyteller in this. And he was funny, which is a brilliant attribute to have, because when people laugh, they start to um, warm to your ideas. So he... he Essentially, wrote the story that the market is efficient. We've all heard about the market efficiency, and so therefore we should give it free rein. Right? If the market is efficient, let it do its thing. Business is innovative, so we should let it lead. Uh, finance, we were told, was infallible. The markets will always take into account all information. So trust in their ways. Trust the financial markets, and that really was trust
2: the, uh, the banks, which we
1: had until the. Trust the bankers, they are taking account of all information. You, the price of the stocks are never wrong. They've taken account of all available information. You can't, you can't win against uh, the market. Trade, win-win, right? We all know trade is win-win, so therefore you should open your borders. And the state was deemed incompetent. And, and Friedman was brilliant at this. He'd say things like, he put the government in, the, in charge of the Saharan Desert, and there'd be a scarcity of sand within a few years. And that's funny, but that doesn't make it true. Yeah. So these were the characters of the, of the story, but there are a bunch of other characters also that weren't even required on the stage because they were marginalized in the neoliberal story. So we've got the household, all that unpaid caring work of cooking, shopping, sleeping, cleaning up, raising the kids. All that was just seen as domestic so we can leave it to the women and not consider it as part of the economy because it doesn't, it doesn't add to GDP. We've got the commons and every economic student has heard of the idea of the tragedy of the commons that it's... People share a resource. They'll inevitably destroy it and and run it down. Garrett Harding. Under that framing, yeah, Garrett Harding, right? Um, If the commons are tragic, well, you should sell them off. Privatize them so we can look after them properly, apparently. Society, Thatcher told us, there is no such thing as society. Well, if there's no such thing as society, we can ignore it. And Earth was... Don't worry if we have a shortage of copper or any kind of minerals. We'll always use them find substitutes, so don't worry about that the market will take care of that. This
2: was Julian Simon's famous bet with Paul Ehrlich, which he ultimately actually won, but in in any case, yes.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, so, this is the
2: neoliberal narrative and it is uh, in the United States it was embraced full-on by the Republican Party and Reagan. The Democratic Party has been kind of schizophrenic about it and and I think the same is true of labor in the UK um, in the U.K., Tony Blair embraced this with new labor, and uh, I would argue it bit him in the butt. Um, in the United States, Bill Clinton embraced it to a large extent. But the Democratic Party itself, by and large, didn't. The Democratic Party, um, at least up until recently, and, and frankly, I think it's it's start, starting to go back to its roots. That every single one of the trade deals that was passed, uh, you know, the Korean Free Trade Agreement, the NAFTA, the, every single one of them, uh, was passed with majority Republican support in the House and Senate and majority Democratic opposition in the House and Senate. So the Democrats never really bought into that part of it. Uh, the Democrats, uh, you know, in in, in many regards, you know, when Bill Clinton said the era of big government is over, there was a lot of pushback from a lot of Democrats when when he, quote, reformed uh, welfare so that it, you couldn't be on for more than five years, um, assuming that we would never have a, a, a recession that lasted more than five years um, a lot of Democrats push back on that and now the Democratic party partic- particularly the uh, the so-called sanders wing of it seems to be wholesale rejecting neoliberalism and I'm seeing the same thing coming out of the uk with uh, jeremy Corbyn I believe um are you seeing do you think that that's a reasonable analysis first of all and secondly uh, I know in your book you offer some some extraordinary you know alternatives to not only neoliberalism but also this this, the, the you know, the general economic, macroeconomic model we've been using. But, you know, where do you think we're yeah. going with all this?
1: So I think that the pushback and coming often from people is that we told this story and it's been the only story on offer, and yet we feel um, insulted by the effects of it, and people experience that in their lives. And so on the trade agreements, I think we're often, because the idea of trade being win-win, we're often told the trade agreements are about deals between countries opening up borders in fact more and more they've been about companies versus governments and increasing that corporate power over the government, again the market over the state I think the rise of founders in this country and the support from many behind Jeremy Corbyn shows there is such a strong for an alternative story, not just what Blair did as a third way, um, can we marry these two, can we you know, pull neoliberalism in a slightly nicer direction, but a different story that starts with a script placed in a completely different place. Because if you, if you you know, Bucky Fuller, right? Buckminster Fuller had such a wonderful quote. He said, you don't change things um, by criticizing the existing react- the model. If you want to change it, you create a new model that makes the existing one obsolete. And so we, we need more than just tweaking on the edges of neoliberalism. We need to start again and put purpose at the heart of the economy and ask ourselves, what is an economy for? And what would it look like to create an economy that actually could deliver that?